Hi, I'm Jane Leader, and you're listening to Older Women and Friends. You know, we older women have a lot to say about love, grief, loss, and resilience. We're more comfortable speaking our truth. We've been good scouts and earned our badges, and now it's time to change the perception that the gig is just about up, when in truth, the second wave of the gig has just begun. We are the matriarchs, the women at the top of the food chain, and we've been given the precious gift of passing along the wisdom that we fought so hard for. So let's build a community of older women, women who are strong, self-fulfilled, and a hell of a lot of fun. When someone suggested that I investigate a group called Grandmothers for Reproductive Rights, I was baffled. What did grandmothers, why were they out on the picket lines? Hadn't they done all this decades before? But then I came to my senses and I realized, of course, grandmothers with the experience and the wisdom should certainly be there sharing all that they know and working with younger people, with younger women and younger men to share their experiences. So I did a little investigation and I discovered that Grandmothers for Reproductive Rights, GER, was founded in Maine and is now a nationwide group, that they are obviously committed to safe abortions that are available and affordable to all. They also work to secure access to sexual and reproductive health, rights and justice for present and future generations. And one of the most interesting programs as part of GER, love to say that, is that it is home to the only national storytelling program for older women who had abortions during the pre-Roe years. So I decided that I wanted to talk to some of these women, and I'd like to introduce you first to Sue Paragut and after to Lisa Kushner. Thank you both of you for giving me your time and your stories. And I'll start with you, Sue. Can you Tell me a little bit about yourself, how old you are, where you live, all that important information. I'm happy to say that I'm 79 years old and uh, still perking along, and I live in upstate New York. I am a a late-in-life documentary filmmaker, independent filmmaker. Fell into it after I retired. It's been the best, best thing I've ever done, almost, not quite. I've done a lot of things in my life. I owned a feminist bookstore. I had a feminist theater troupe. So I definitely see myself as a feminist. I think I was born a feminist. So I still am. And Lisa, welcome. A little bit about you and your background. Uh, Thank you. I'm uh, Lisa Kushner. I live in Midcoast, Maine. I'm 76 years old. I've uh, recently retired after a career as a psychotherapist. And uh, before that, I had a uh, 20-year job as a family planning educator and counselor. I'm a mother of two exceptional children. I've uh, been 
greatly influenced by the experience I had, and it's really formed a lot of my life. So I'm interested in talking about it. Well, my story is a little unusual, but um, I was 19. I was a, going to a city college in New York. I got pregnant after a recent breakup with a boyfriend uh, who was not husband material. I knew about birth control because I went to a very expensive gynecologist and got a diaphragm. So, I mean, that's all I knew about were condoms and diaphragms. And in 1966, that's all there was for birth control. So I had to lie to get the diaphragm and say I was married uh, in order to get an appointment. But, um, you know, I had some knowledge about the options. Well, either the diaphragm didn't work or I didn't work it right. But in any event, I was a college sophomore or a junior and I was pregnant. It was a very uh, terrifying, helpless, uh, miserable feeling to know that there was nowhere to turn. You know, in the age before cell phones, it was challenging for a college student to make phone calls and anonymously because I was living at home with my family. I had one friend who had her own apartment. And so I had to negotiate making many, many phone calls to every woman I could think of and many whom I did not know. I mean, I barely knew who was sexually active, you know, but I called many, many people and finally someone called me back. And she told me about an abortionist that she had gone to and she told me all of the details and everything about the procedure. And from what she told me, I decided that it was as safe a situation as I was going to get and I made an appointment. Of course, I didn't have a car. You know, I was in New York City and I didn't know how to get to this other state, New Jersey, where the uh, abortionist was. So I told my twin brother, thinking that he would have to drive me, but he forced me to tell our parents. And um, my mother slapped me for the first time in my life. And she was so disappointed and I felt so badly to disappoint them. But they did end up helping me by taking me there and sort of supporting me through it. It made me indebted to them in an unusual way. And so um, the key point about this that I want to mention is that my father was a veteran of World War II, and he had been working as a mechanic in a medical unit fixing iron lungs and uh, x-ray machines. And he saw some really horrible things. And in his later years, in his 90s, he started having a lot of flashbacks for the first time and talking about it and being deeply upset. So, you know, I was a social worker. I was helping him through it and talking with him about it. And at one point I said, Dad, you know, how did you manage your fear around that? I mean, it must have been horrifying, all the injuries you were seeing. And here's what he said. He said, I wasn't afraid for myself. I didn't think anything could really happen to me. The most afraid I've ever been was when we went for that abortion you had. Wow. So, wow. you know, when people limit access to abortion or make abortion illegal, they are affecting families uh, in very deep ways. If one in four women, ha women have has an abortion, many, many people subsequently are deeply affected by that. And I was furious when I heard that. I felt like, okay, 
People want to punish women for having sex, for getting even for getting pregnant. But they don't realize that they're punishing their veterans and their family members and everybody else in that woman's life. So I feel like that message from my dad really, um, really hit home. I don't think that courts or state legislators should be deciding a woman's family size. I mean, it's got nothing to do with anybody. It's up to her. It's her reproductive life. It's the foundation of her life. In my mind, abortion is health care. And it, yes, it's a loss and women can handle it. Women have to handle a lot. Having a uterus is a huge responsibility. Women can handle these decisions and they shouldn't be taken away. So Sue, can you introduce yourself and let us know a little bit about you and your circumstances? In 1965, yes, it was in my first real job. I was with uh, somebody I shouldn't have been with. <laughs> and you talk about not husband material, but I wasn't wife material. I was absolutely not interested actually in getting married. So it didn't matter. This was a boyfriend, met my needs at the time. Uh, so birth control was not available at the time. So we used condoms and like condoms do, it broke. And I found myself pregnant. I was a year out of college and I was in a group therapy and I brought it up in the group therapy that I was pregnant. And lucky me, one of the people in group therapy's girlfriend had just had an abortion. So I had to go to see a, a, a doctor in New York first. So I went to her and she said, it's going to be a thousand dollars. And I'm like, no way. I don't have a thousand dollars. It's not going to happen. We negotiated. I think it was my first negotiation <laughs> ever. <laughs> we negotiated that to $700 cash, which I was to bring with me. I was to meet on the platform of the Newark, uh, New Jersey bus station. And they were, I had a carnation in my lapel and I was picked up and driven to the abortion and given not that many drugs so that I woke up in the middle of the abortion. But, but basically, I survived. And I want to sort of piggyback on <clears throat> what Lisa said about the other people involved. My roommate at the time, my best friend, and my brother all gave me money because I had no money. It was my first month of my job. I hadn't even had a paycheck or my second month of my job. And so they lent me money. Now, I'm still friends with my roommate, my best friend from college and and high school and my brother. And recently I've been asked talking to them about my abortion. And I said, so what was it like for you? And all three of them said in their own way, they were petrified for me. They were worried. They didn't, nobody cared about the fact that it was illegal. That was just not even like a problem. It was, will she come out of it alive? Will I ever see her again? I didn't let anybody go with me. Uh, we weren't supposed to bring anybody. Nobody knew where I was. So they were all like, "Is, is she, will she be alive? And this, they spent the day horrified and horrible and hoping that I was going to live. And, and I've gotten this feedback recently that this is the three of them. Many years later, in my 40s, I finally told my mother, who then told me that she had had an abortion after me. So when she was 29 years old, I was three months old, 
my brother was 17 months old. She got pregnant. And she just knew that there was no way that she could have another infant. So her doctor gave her an abortion. This is 19, so like I was three months old. This is 1944. Doctor gave her an abortion. That was it. But she And she told me after I told her. It also turns out, Lisa, that I could have told my parents about the abortion. They would have been supportive. They probably would have helped me. But I was very much into separating from my parents at the time, having to do things on my own and not wanting to be beholden to them for anything, really. So when birth control pills showed up, which was shortly after that, I went to my gynecologist, who was a guy, and I said to him, gee, I'm not getting my period uh, every month. That's And birth control pills would regulate you. So I said, so I really need birth control pills to be regulated. And he, in three seconds, no problem, wrote me a prescription. He would have done it no matter what I said. I don't know if he knew I had an abortion. I never said a word, but I did get birth control pills after that. And speaking about who knew and who didn't, so um, Lisa, you said you've been with a partner for well over 40 years. Is this something that you have shared? Absolutely. I mean, I started talking about it, well, within the last 20 years, because I I mean, I, my partner knew about it when we met. I mean, it was not a secret, but I've started talking publicly about it because I want to... Um, break down the stigma. And I also want people to feel at ease about conversing because I'd like to engage people that disagree. But what's interesting is um, the reason we can talk about it, Sue, myself, other members of the Grandmothers for Reproductive Rights, is possibly because the trauma was small and it wasn't so significant that it froze us. And I mean, I think that for people who can't talk about it, we have a responsibility to talk about it. It was a trauma for me, though, because because it was illegal. Even though we didn't worry that we would get right. arrested or anything, it was illegal. Right. So I knew it that. It was horrifying. But it, but, it yeah. didn't, but it sort of didn't bother me because I was really a hippie anyway. So, so for me, what happened was that when I got involved in the women's movement, I started to protest on the streets for abortion rights, because I was living in New York City. And then I was in a feminist theater troupe, and we were telling stories from our lives. And I never told that story. Never. I told all kinds of stories about my life, although not as much as other people, but I never talked about my abortion. Before I joined the troupe, I went to an abortion speak out at Washington Square Church in 1969, I think it was. And I stood up and talked about my abortion to this whole room full of strangers. And then I protested, and then that was it. And then I stopped. I didn't talk about it. I thought about it. I absolutely knew the anniversary of the day that I had the abortion, but I didn't talk about it until I made this film about Connie Cook in 2015. And when I showed it, I realized when it was screened, I had to talk about my illegal abortion. So I've been talking about it to all kinds of people. I belong to both Grandmothers for Reproductive Rights and an organization in our town called End Abortion Stigma. We have held rallies. We work with Planned Parenthood. We've written letters to the editor. 
I've made a short film. Um, we uh, do all kinds of protests. We live in a town with several colleges. We go and talk to the young college students about what's going on. And what I've noticed since Roe v. Wade disappeared is that these young college women and men are in the same situation that we were in, only it's worse because because we didn't care it was illegal. Now it's illegal for some people and their lives are not just having the abortion, but their lives are at stake because it's illegal. So I've noticed these young people are really, really, really interested in our stories and our activism and the fact that we're still active and still activists and still fighting for reproductive justice. So Lisa, then, you're not a grandmother. I'm not either, darn it. How did you get involved with GER? I think I saw a um, an advertisement, a flyer. I think I saw a flyer about six, seven years ago when it first started in our state. And um, I recognized the names of some of the people who were involved from my other work life. And, uh, you know, I explored it and uh, I realized that I wanted to do something. You don't have to be a grandparent to be involved in the Grandmothers for Reproductive Rights group. You just have to be have an interest. And so um, maybe they should change the name. <laughs> Is there anything else that you would like to share about your experiences? It's interesting because both of you, in effect, have said that you've learned from that experience, you grew from that experience. And Lisa, if I heard you correctly, it was almost as if that it ended up being, in many ways, a very positive experience for you. Am I misreading that? Well, I would say that it. I would like to have avoided it. And no, it, it was not something that I'm glad about that happened. But you know how life kind of leads you into things. And so it just led me into, onto a path that was uh, okay, was successful. But no, I don't feel happy about it. I wish it never happened. I wish my, I feel like my body betrayed me and that, uh, I didn't want that pregnancy. I was sorry that my body got pregnant, but it did force the issue in terms of what I was going to do with myself. So I'm just saying that the consequences were okay. Yep. It was not, I don't feel like it shaped me. I was an activist because I'm an activist. I would have been an activist whether I had the abortion or not. So it didn't really shape me. And I have a story to tell, so I'm telling it. And I no longer feel shame. And I can talk about it in a way that appeals to people. I've had amazing feedback from young people when I speak at rallies. They are just, they, they're just so glad to hear the story. Well, I'm really glad that both of you were willing to share your stories with me. And I'm very, very happy that you were willing to spend this time with me. It's been informative. You're both very articulate and um, very proud to count myself among uh, this group of older women. Thank you so much for joining me on this episode of Older Women and Friends. And speaking of friends, please tell yours. 
And if you're interested in reaching me with comments or suggestions, you can do that by emailing me at olderwomenandfriendspodcast at gmail.com. Or you can check out my blog at 70andme.com, and that's 70, the letter N, me, 70andme.com. Until next time.